listeners, and from George Stevens Academy, welcoming students to discover their world. More information at georgestevensacademy.org. This is WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners. Thank you. The time is just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Storytelling fans and local history buffs are in for a treat today as we bring you some of the voices from Still Mill, recorded on July 21st at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport by John Greenman. The event was based on the book, Still Mill, Poems, Stories, and Songs of Making Paper in Bucksport, Maine, 1930 to 2014, edited by Patricia Smith-Ranzoni, Bucksport's Poet Laureate, and published by North Country Press. Mel Allen, editor of Yankee Magazine and author of the 2018 article, Bucksport, Maine, The Town That Refused to Die, was the facilitator. It's really a privilege for me to, to stand here um, today. You know, this is not how it usually works. Uh, you don't usually um, immerse yourself in people's lives and write a magazine story and come back. It's usually you write, you immerse yourself, you write the story, and you keep moving on. But your story was so um, compelling to me that it has never left me. And it is the favorite story I've written in my 40 years at Yankee. And, and today I was, I was thinking how awestruck the, pe- the faces would be of the people who helped build the mill and all the men and women who worked in that mill for all these years to realize that their lives will never, ever be forgotten because of what everyone here has done and what Pat has put in, into this book. But what she's put into this book is what your stories are, what you've told her. And um, she has created in this book, she's laid down the roots, these memories that are going so deep that none of you will ever be forgotten. And with that, I want to start with... Fellas Soper Wardwell. My story begins with my earliest memories when the mill was built. It was a godsend for my parents. They had inherited my grandfather's old run-down farm, no running water, no electricity, and only a lonely little outhouse. This made winters rather brutal. And the pipeline was to be built. It would run nearly two miles across my hayfields and woodlots owned by my parents, and they were to be paid for this. I don't remember if I ever knew how much they were paid, but it was enough that they could put in a real bathroom and run in water as they were allowed to tap into this pipeline. No pump required, plenty of pressure. And electric lights, too. Even the cows were happier. No more hiking nearly a half mile to the nearest brook for a drink. A big tub, always full, right next to the barn. And Mother's wash day was so much easier for all concerned. No more legging pails of water pumped from the well to the house than my job. My father, Herbert Soper, was one of the first hired at the mill when it was built. He had been gassed during World War I when he was in France, and something about the atmosphere at the mill irritated his lungs. But he continued to supply the mill with pulpwood 
I'm totally retired from farming. I worked at the mill the summer after I graduated from high school in 1939. My job was wrapping rims of paper. I don't remember just what kind or the name of the department. My husband, Dawn, went to work in the mill in September 1946 after returning from two years in Germany and Belgium in World War II. He worked in the boiler room of the power plant for 37 years, retiring in 1982. Along with this work, he had his own pulpwood business, cutting, selling, hauling, and supplying pulpwood for the mill during these years as an extra job. My son, Joel, also worked summers in the boiler room with his father while going to the University of Maine in the early 70s. He and our son-in-law, Wilbur Wilson, daughter Donna's husband, were the third generation of our family to work at the mill, and then son Greg Wilson, who lost his job when the mill closed the, closed the fourth. I don't have much to tell about the great years of the paper mill. Maybe I just don't remember. That's what you get for getting old. The mill provided many livelihoods for hard-working families. We had a good life and our four children, except for the heartbreaking loss of our son Michael and Maureen in Vietnam in 1967. And that's my contribution. A lot of pride in that hard work by musician Sandra Bowden Dillon documents, documents her family's multi-generation relationship with the mill. Her voice and that of her mother, teacher, and poet, Minnie Bowden, echo through Orland, where she returns summers to keep faith with her roots. A lot of pride in all that hard work. My grandfather, Emery Bowden, worked at the mill in the 30s and 40s periodically, in the yard when the mill needed help to unload large quantities of wood that sometimes arrived at the same time. The extra money would always come in handy for a major project. He didn't want to work full-time at the mill or be bound by anyone else's rules or schedules, as he loved the out-of-doors and the seasonal life of a Maine farmer and fisherman. On the Castine Road in Orland, Maine, one of the winter jobs for men was cutting wood. Firewood for home eating, sometimes for sale. Logs for Herm Austin Sawmill in Penobscot for lumber for sale or for personal use. And pulpwood to sell at the St. Regis Paper Company in Bucksport. My grandfather, Emery Bowden, and my father, Don Bowden, manned the two-man saws, axes, wedges, and horse-hauling sledge to harvest the wood. They hauled out the wood on the sledge, put it in one of the appropriate three different areas of piled wood alongside the detour woods road that ran behind their big chicken houses, all convenient to the casting road to be taken to the various mills. Don and Emery split their own firewood to be seasoned and eventually stored in various woodsheds. There was a lot of pride in all that hard work. Living on Hard Scrabble Hill with its rocky shore and mudflats had some advantages, one of which was the Penobscot River current. Coming around the northern end of Verona Island brought daily treasures to our shore with each tidal change. Bottles, dishes, logs, pots, 
toys, wood, walls, parts of buildings, and even buildings themselves, especially on the flood tides. The best part was the pulpwood that escaped from the various mills along the river. All the people who had shore property would retrieve those logs and pulpwood to sell back to the mills. <laughs> Unfortunately, two dead bodies were also discovered on our shore. One was a Canadian sailor who fell off his ship that was anchored in Bucksport. A few bottles of whiskey were found in his pockets, so everyone joked that he died a happy man. The other man was a friend of Emery's and Don's. He had slipped while helping to unload a barge at the mill at night. He had hit his head as he went under. The current was too swift and murky for anyone to rescue him. Emery and Don would go to the shore daily on the tidal changes to check for the body. A week later, they found him. And even though it was very difficult for them, they handled everything with quiet dignity and care that Maine men do for one another and their families. When Don came home after serving in the Army Air Corps in World War II, he wanted to continue what his father was doing for the family farm and shore. With the GI Bill, he took Aggie courses at night at Bucksport High School to learn how to do it better. He loved it in spite of the hard work and undependable weather. When my mother Minnie stopped teaching due to poor health, he felt the family needed a consistent paycheck and benefits, so he joined the St. Regis Paper Company. After going through the probationary period of being called in at every time, day or night, any weather, doing any job, he was finally put on the paper machines as a sixth hand. It was very difficult to manage shift work with the changing weather and tides and trying to farm and fish. After a few years of mill employment, Don took his family on a tour of the mill so they could understand what he daily endured. When the family first felt and heard the tremendous heat and noise in that dark, dirty machine air area, they felt they were seeing a man-made version of hell. To see all the big open holes in the floor with no rails or warning labels around them was very scary, especially when the family learned that the grinders were directly underneath the holes. They were a quick, convenient way to dispose of any scrap paper or mash that occurred around the paper machines. All of a sudden, a huge respect and appreciation was gained for all the men who were putting their lives and bodies on the line every day when they went to work just to make paper. In the winter of 1962, there was a record blizzard that blasted the Bucksport area with a lot of snow and intense high winds. The mill rule was one couldn't go home until the man in the next shift relieved you. Don was working the 4 to 12 shift, coming from seven miles away on the Castine Road in Orland. Barely made it to the mill. The man he relieved lived in town and was very grateful for my father's efforts. And even though he lived fairly close to the mill, it took him a lot of effort and time to get home. <coughs> Excuse me again. <coughs> Which he safely did. From midnight on, no one could safely come or go from the mill. Because of the terrible winds, there were a lot of power interruptions, thus a lot of breaks in the paper stream and wind. It was awful. The men took turns sleeping and manning the machines. 
Eventually, all the food the men had brought and all the food in the canteens was gone. The mill contacted the Bucksport police to see if they could round up some food and get it to the mill. After a while, Bucksport snowplows brought food to the men in the mill. I don't remember what it was or where they got it. On the afternoon of the first day, Bob Harper, who lived on Orland Hill in Orland, was very worried about his family. So he decided to try to make it home, braving the deeply drifting snow, ice, and terrible winds. He was given a ride part way by a snowplow and let out on top of the hill on Route 1. He walked across the field, but he never made it. He was found frozen, sitting beside their doghouse. Meanwhile, at the mill, the machines were running, no matter what obstacles were happening, thanks to the dedicated men who were stuck there. On the morning of the third day, Don's day shift replacement had finally arrived. He lived near the mill and had walked, actually snowshoed, as nothing had been plowed. Don could now go home if he wanted to go. And even though nothing had been plowed, he felt he had to try to make it home as his farm animals and poultry hadn't been fed or watered in three days. Plus, he was worried about his family. The phone lines as well as the power lines were down. Ralston Gray, who lived further down the Castine Road, also wanted to go home. A fellow worker said his skis and boots were in the car in the parking lot if one of the men wanted to use them. Don didn't want to bother, as he wanted to get home as fast as he could by his own power. He knew he could do it, as he'd walk the seven miles to high school every day, even when he'd stayed for football, basketball, and baseball practices and games. However, he had never seen so much snow outside the mill in his life. He was very worried about getting over the big drifts. He soon discovered that the huge drifts were made by big winds clearing a lot of the land of its snow, so he could just walk around the drifts. It was a beautiful sunny day, a nice day for a walk. As it turned out, Don was the first person anyone had seen on the road for three days. Everyone would ask him to come into their house for rest and food, but he would thank them and say he had to get to his animals and family. Once in a while, he'd accept some water. Everyone was very impressed by his efforts, so he felt like a celebrity. As soon as he arrived home and, f and saw that his family was fine, he tended to his animals and birds and did all the necessary shoveling. Ralston finally walked by the house, carrying the skis. I couldn't get to make these damn things work. It's easier to walk. Don finally ate, slept, and was back to the mill, luckily, on the new week shift, which changed into 12 to 8 for him. By that time, the main roads were plowed. His wife gave him a ride to the mill so he could come home in his car the next morning. A lot of pride and all that hard work. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. You're listening to some of the voices from Still Mill, recorded on July 21st at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport. The book, Still Mill, Poems, Stories, and Songs of Papermaking in Bucksport, Maine, 1930-2014, to 2014, was edited by Patricia Smith-Ranzoni and published by North Country Press. High school sweethearts Jackie Willette and Frank Dunbar are known for the ukulele playing and singing, especially songs of the 50s. 
and the world-class Labrador puppies they have raised using paper machine felt for whelping blankets. Still Mill contains the story of Jackie's work making paper, which they will read from together the way they lived it. I don't know if I tell you, should tell you or not, I'm supposed to stick right to the script. <laughs> I, have, I don't have a clue why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, says Frankie. Jackie and the trucker and the jokester. It isn't easy uh, tracking Jackie down for her story. She's so busy in the farm in Millvale, especially during whelping season. But a couple of conversations over time yielded an account worth working for. Frank had worked in the mill um, when he was in high school, in the summers. Uh, he applied for a job after he had been working as a barber, um, but they said it would be about a year before he could get in. But they called him right away, and he decided. He, he, they called him right away, and uh, he decided to stick to barbering. So I just applied as kind of a lark. And I was surprised when the personnel manager, Phyllis Gross, called me saying, I want you to come in at midnight. That was November 1979. My introduction had to do with a broken conveyor uh, near the grinders. I had to keep it cleaned off, taking the bark away. Wilbur Wilson was my first foreman. Yes. Eventually, I trained on everything in the mill, all as a spare, wherever they needed me. It was quite a shock for the 40-year-old grandmother coming right out of the kitchen. But Jackie knew about some aspects of the mill work because her father, Raymond Ouellette, who had worked there long enough to earn a Rolex watch, which I still have in my sock drawer. <laughs> um, I claimed it. And an educator, they had lived all over the state of Maine. should have worn it. Huh? I should have worn it? No. <laughs> I lost my place. Cut it out. Over the state, following his many jobs, Jackie was 12 when, they went into the, when he went into the mill. And let's see, and they moved to Bucksport to stay. He had taught hard courses of chemistry, advanced math that prepared him to work in the coating department. It was hard for him because of the dust containing the coating material as well as wood. He, he had allergies, as she did. He eventually returned to teaching, but with the mill work, he was able to pay back what he had borrowed from his teacher's retirement fund. I worked just about everywhere. You had to put in bids on to get certain jobs. I would do anything to avoid being around the paper machines. Too hot and noisy, and some places got up to 120 degrees. I unloaded wood from flatbed railroad cars, picking up by hand any that spilled. The wood in these mountainous piles had to be used up frequently to keep them fresh. I also worked in the train shed, rolling and wrapping the rolls and loading them with a forklift, sometimes three tiers high. Um, they had to be wrapped and strapped tight in the trains to keep them from moving. The lab was boring. I couldn't be around that steamy pulp, and the dust from super calendars bothered me very much. I liked being in the rigger crew, driving truck and working outside, because I was an outdoor girl. Working with the rigger's office meant good walks outside. From time to time, I'd be assigned to clean out those huge vats on wash-ups, during the shutdown on the 4th of July and Christmas. We had to clean everything in the place and everything in the mill, the wet stuff and the dry stuff. Of course, they dangled overtime holiday pay in front of you for that. Ron Porter, I hope he's here, 
trained her on truck driving. Some of the men in the mill teased him for having trained a woman to drive. I got my class two license after taking the test in a snowstorm. That qualified me to drive 13-speed, 12-yard dump trucks. <laughs> we trucked everything um, off the conveyors before they, uh, before they put in conveyors. And I had to back in around a sharp corner down a narrow opening with only a couple of inches on each side. And sometimes the ice would build up and I had to get someone into sand so we could get out. I had to truck the bark and dewatered sludge to the bark dump across Route 15 before they started burning it in the boiler house. That was that last big chimney stack. You had to make sure the trucks on any job weren't overloaded. And I only did it once. I sat in the truck at 6 a.m. after I worked all night and I fell asleep. <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> I also drove a bulldozer and a payloader. There were two drivers taking turns around the shift, around the clock on three shifts. The bark dumps were very slippery, like Crisco, all the time, but especially treacherous when it was snowing or raining, and you couldn't even see. One dark, snowy night, I got in trouble on the top tier, and there was no way to contact anyone from help. No radio, no flashlight. So I had to do double duty and pull myself out, and I walked down in the dark to the bottom tier, and I hooked up the dozer and pulled my truck out. <laughs> the Wardwells loved to have her drive the trucks because she took such good care of them. Some guys didn't. They would crash right through a gate. A funny story. Some of the guys would have to leave their adult reading material in the trucks from the last shift. I would uh, drive up to the dump and put them in the back of the truck on the ground and then pull the lever and bury whatever it was. <laughs> no one ever said anything, and after a while they didn't leave any more reading material in the trucks. <laughs> I would tease them because if you were full of yourself and snotty, it would make it worse. So we had special ways of teasing each other, like sometimes greasing your handles on your mop bucket or, or on your shovels. <laughs> One such story had to do with a lifelong friend of mine, Barry Murchie. Everyone who knew me knew that uh, along with being a, a scrapbooker and a historian, historian from childhood, I was a prankster with photographs to prove it. My schoolmates especially knew how I loved to capture evidence. One, one day, one of my pictures showed up around the mill with affection and, of course, of a best friend. Seemed like some of the boys from those devilish days in the 50s, uh, 50s had attended a gathering of pals, of teammates at my old house in Penobscot. Though one of the, <laughs> one of the times, our, one time Barry uh, got his clothes wet, it rained and he hung them out to dry in just his t-shirt. <clears throat> And uh, ignore, uh, unbeknownst to Barry, I snapped a shot of him back to hanging up his clothes, well, like I say, with a T-shirt on. I captured it, and that's how I happened to call him Bear for the rest of his life. The Bear is Bear. I did. Every time, that's what I nicknamed him anyway. The bear, I said, the Bear is Bear. Decades later, one knew, no one knew who made those copies of the pictures and posted them throughout every billboard in the mill. <laughs> Until Jackie confessed it years later. And, and his wife, they both got the biggest kick out of that story, and I still have that picture. The mischief made working in the mill bearable. 
Eventually, though, I had to stand up for myself and plead for some day shifts. Must I have all midnight? I did learn maintenance is the hardest work for the least amount of pay, but you could select your own hours when you were doing janitor work. Growing up here, taking a break, going easy wasn't part of our work ethic. She hasn't changed. Eventually, they cut back on the spare list, and you could work. If you, if you lacked in seniority, you worked in maintenance, which was even harder. Over time, the physical labor of 19 years got to be too much, took its toll on my body. I suffered from fibromyalgia and could feel myself wearing down. In September of 1980, I didn't feel well and knew something was, was wrong. Um, ended up with cancer, and I underwent 25 radiation treatments in uh, October and November. I had three days off for holidays, and then I had surgery in January of 81. Thank God it was successful, and I returned to the mill after six weeks off. Before this, I had put in to go in the woodroom department, where the, mill goes in, where the wood goes in the mill, the four-foot logs. I had to keep them from jamming in these uh, antiquated, massive uh, wooden doors that you had to shut. I actually broke my finger, and I didn't even tell him. We, uh, one time, we had 40 jams in one shift. I had to pull them all out, and that was after I just had surgery. <laughs> I did get through in 1998. I kind of had to. I felt myself failing, but I was so thankful for the opportunity to work at St. Regis Champion and International Paper. It actually allowed Frank the chance to build his uh, new barbershop. Yep. And we had insurance for the first time in our married life. But my doctor told me that I'd been a good worker. No one ever said that she did a good job. We, and we've been married 60 years now. In September. In September. Irene Atwood Bridges grew up in the farmstead that Frank and Jackie Dunbar now own at the top of Bridges Hill in Millville, and where she lives to this day after raising their own children there. Also known as Outback, she says she is proud to say that she has lived all of her life in Bucksport, and how her husband, a member of a remarkable family of 13, was taught as a child to be humble and grateful for the little things in life. My story, my little story, is not unlike those of a lot of young men in the 50s. The most handsome man in Bucksport. After we were married in 1956, my husband, Herb Atwood, worked at several jobs during the summer. In the fall, he applied with Mr. Chase to work at St. Regis as a spare employee. In order to be assured of work, Herb would rise every day and be in the outer office of the mill very early. He wanted to be readily available if a spare was needed that day. Some mornings he did not get work at all, so he would repeat the process in the afternoon. He worked many jobs during this time, many of which were quite demanding. That first winter, he sometimes would arrive home after midnight, completely soaked and nearly frozen because of the ice-covered pulp that he had unloaded from the train, from the train cars. <clears throat> Before long, however, Herb obtained a job in the train shed. Though this was an outdoor job for the most part, he enjoyed the work and the crew, 
even participated in a forklift derby. The steering handle one day, unfortunately, accounted for a broken wrist, which was his only injury during his many years at the mill. When Herb was offered a job in the coding department, he accepted it happily and remained there with a great group of co-workers until his retirement, having gone from handling pulpwood to operating a computer. Our children's favorite mill memory is that, upon their father's return from work, they would rush to open his lunch basket, used by most of the men, to see if Herb had visited the canteen and dropped some M&Ms into the basket. On occasion, since we were a one-car family, I would need to take Herb to work in the morning, returning with the children to pick him up later. There were always groans as I consistently said to them, now, when you see the most handsome man in Boxport <laughs> walk out through that gate, that, of course, will be your dad. <laughs> Though sometimes the shift work could be difficult, the mill provided a good living for us and many other Boxport families. Herb enjoyed his work and his co-workers, first for St. Regis, then Champion, and ultimately retiring from international paper after 42 years. We were all heartbroken when our beloved Herb dropped suddenly on, in September, as was written in his obituary and often repeated by his family and co-workers. Herb was a kind and gentle man who never made an enemy in his whole life. Thank you. John Paul and Melissa Lalonde will now read a duet they've entitled Obituary, which rose from his 36 years in the Timberland and Operations Department at the mill and her 25 years touching and being touched by mill families as a teacher. John Paul will be remembered reading the cremation of Sam McGee annually at the town's Poetry Month readings at the gazebo on the waterfront, and she for guiding her fourth graders to write poems on the mill's closing that are exhibited here today and are in the book. Verso Paper Mill went to the great beyond in December of 2014 after a long, courageous battle with the economy. It was born in 1930 and lived many, many wonderful years along the Bucksport waterfront. It provided 12,000 people jobs <clears throat> during its heyday and guided four generations through good times and bad times. The mill enjoyed success under many names and owners for most of its life, but it began, began to fail in more recent years. The mill is survived by thousands of past and present employees a whole community of citizens who benefited from its taxes, contributions, and many buildings, parking lots, and smokestacks. May our mill rest in peace. Singer-songwriter Chris Soper is a commercial fisherman on the fishing vessel Guess, Guess Work out of Stonington. Pretty much his entire family were mill workers, and his great-grandfather helped build it. 
Chris says he wrote this song, which has been recorded and shared widely, quote, for all the former mill workers who have kept their heads up through this rough process, dealing with this, a show of solidarity. I feel so tall. <laughs> Riverbed I hear that whistle blowing And I knew it was time for bed Generations before me Have walked down the lines Now it's just a memory It's a piece of time Small town America, where'd you go? So much money, nothing left to show. Just like a candle that's been burned to the floor. Small town America, no more. But we can't speak our minds In a world of deceit Honesty's so hard to find Like this old mill town Everything's The rich getting richer on their to hell small town America where'd you go so much money nothing left to show just like a candle that's been burned to the floor small town America no more They get what they want, then they'll take some more. You're not a person, and you're not supposed to feel. You're just a number on their corporate wheel. money, nothing left to show Just like a candle that's been burned to the floor Small town America Small town America No more
was Chris Soper, and I'll put a link to that uh, video up on the archives of this program, which will be posted tomorrow or possibly later today at WERU.org. You're listening to some of the voices from Still Mill, recorded July 21st at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport. It was based on the book Still Mill, Poems, Stories, and Songs of Making Paper in Bucksport, Maine, 1930 to 2014, which was edited by Patricia Smith Ranzoni and published by North Country Press. In this final segment, you'll also hear from some of the members of the audience. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. And the uh, moderator of this event is Mel Allen, the editor of Yankee Magazine, who wrote a 2018 article called Bucksport, uh, yeah, Bucksport, Maine, the Town That Refused to Die. We'll put a link to that up as well. Poet John Campbell, of native and of Canadian heritage, was born in Dedham in 1947. His wife, Linda, worked under Champion in the yard for the super calendars and from 1984 to 86 in the lab. John worked as a millwright at Eastern Fine Paper and Brewer for 25 years until it, too, closed. He's a certified welder and licensed stationary uh, engineer. They both are artists and sculptors. Once again, thank you, Pat. Main Rail. Plumb the depth of time, sitting by shore a moving water, deep in the crowded forest of memories, dredging up the glorious past that's now soggy and devoid of life, like the drowned beaver pulled from the trap. Dead animal, sell the pelt, waste the meat, pocket the money. Honor the totem animal. They snicker and laugh. Grandfather worked the woods camps. Other grandfather worked the mill. Three generations cut wood. Families worked the mills. The mills were our families. Always beside the rivers, small towns surrounded by forests. Bart McMack. We're born to forest and trees. Work 24 hours sometimes. Keep the machines running, they said. They got a sound. Then a sound came from New York and Boston, from men wearing gray suits. Heard them snicker and laugh. It echoed up the eastern seaboard, way up the rivers of Maine. Close the mills. Smokestacks crashed, like the trees we used to fell. Defaulted scam loans filled gray suits with cash. Broken contracts, shattered lives. Bulls of Wall Street in a china shop called Maine. Hundred million dollar paper machines sold for scrap. Politicians say service economy Tourism, retraining, they snicker and laugh. Send us to hamburger school, can't wait. In season, serve a hamburger for to, to tourists, smile, minimum wage. Funny thing happened on the way to poverty, they increased our taxes.
saw some suicides too. Gray suits, fancy dresses at parties, dancing to the wisdom of greed didn't save one job. What got saved? We live in the woods, cut firewood, can't afford to burn oil, heat with wood. Neighbors and friends buy the extra that's cut. Sometimes I see hard times in their eyes. Read between unspoken lines, give them extra half a cord. They helped me plenty when I needed. 45-year-old tractor breaks down. Henry fixes it. We give him raspberries when they come in season. Bill visited, gave me five fresh-caught trout. When I raised pigs, we shared the meat. Snowstorm, not even light yet. Kenny's plowing my lower driveway. Must be five people give us deer, meat, moose, turkey. Years ago, I cut up meat for them. They remember. Let her neighbor graze his sheep in my field. My bush hog broke down. Can't afford to fix it. He bush hogs my other field. I'm thankful for every gift. My wife sews beautiful quilts, gives them away, family. We make our own Christmas cards, send them, give them away. She worked the mill once. Don't have much money. All this giving made us all rich in the soul. We're sewn together like my wife's quilts. Not a writer, but I know it's real. It ain't torn down mills or greed. Thank you. Launching her own books these days, seven so far, retired educator Jane Harvey Mead also grew up here, class of 1958. When she was in high school, she started teaching her younger brother and his pals in their garage and didn't stop until logging 38 years in education. She's also a songwriter and hopes to include a book of her songs in her repertoire of publications before concluding what she calls her, quote, second life as an author. The Lunch Basket. It's a heavy pocketbook. The mill is gone, but my father's brown lunch basket is still here. It sits on my dining area. We filled it with flower arrangements, usually. Sometimes it's on our high mantel over the pantry. Sometimes it just sits on the floor by the hutch. When it's there on the floor, it appears more weary, as if it's about to buckle from all the shift work for all the years that my dad, John W. Harvey, carried it faithfully on the 4 to 12, midnight to 8, and 8 to 4 shifts. He had come to Bucksport with his whole family when his father, 
Oswald Saunders' hobby, heard that a mill was being built in this town. The Harveys moved to Verona Island, and Dad first went to work for Elton Grindle as a butcher at his market on Main Street. During those early days in town, Dad pored over books on electricity in his off hours and became a licensed electrician. As a result, he was hired as a switchroom operator at Bucksport St. Regis Paper Mill. What a blessing that mill was to all the families who grew and thrived because of the opportunity it provided. Dad went on to acquire a real estate license, become a notary public, a volunteer fireman, and even a selectman for a while because shift work offered him enough hours in the week to accomplish other goals and pursue his and my mother's other interests, to build their family a house and send their two children to college. Mama, Agatha Dyer Harvey of Dexter, Maine, substituted in the Bucksport schools after we were born and helped Dad run his real estate and insurance office. She did secretary work for him and answered the phone. Her assistance was important, especially when he was working the day shifts or sleeping in preparation for the midnight to eight rotation. I can remember Mama warning that Dad's sleeping, he has to go to work at 11.30. All the while, that basket traveled back and forth day after day, year after year by Dad's side. I keep it to look back and remember my father's hard work and now to remember to be thankful for a town and an industry which provided such a stable way of life for its families. Yes, the mill is no longer humming in the background of our lives, but every day we see what it has left us a solid, reputable public education system, a vital health care facility, a theater that is becoming an historical museum and keeper of our past, a library elegant in design and filled with cultural treasures, a well-maintained nine-hole golf course, what other town the size of Bucksport has such a feature, our well-built homes, and our cherished families. They, like my father's lunch basket, are to be honored and cared for and will help us to remember how blessed we have been as we move forward. There's a Stubbs Brook in Bucks Mills, and Mark Stubbs found himself growing up there on ancestral ground. Mark's great-grandfather came from Newfoundland for work and helped construct the mill. His grandfather worked in the mill in several positions, finishing up in the carpenter shop in the 1940s. His grandfather took over as foreman when his father died. Mark's father started in 1964, eventually working every job in the mill. But Mark always wanted to teach, turning to early elementary and severely at-risk students. He found the piece he's going to read today, quote, hard to write. 
but says he is grateful for, quote again, the opportunity to heal through writing. It's good to be home. The mill meant many things. It often encompassed every part of my school-age life. Wherever I went, be it Shop and Save, Western Auto, the Little League field, high school basketball games, or White's Dairy, the mill was a constant source of conversation with adults. As a child, the conversations were half listened to and created a vision of inner workings, albeit a bit distorted from reality. The wash-ups, changing a wire, the magazine room, and the stores sounded like glorious and special events and places. It was a common language that bound the community that worked in the mill. The large circular size signs that dotted the telephone poles en route to the Bangor Auditorium tournaments each year were supplied by the mill. When we came back into town via a parade of fire trucks and a police escort, it started at the mill parking lot. Bucksport did not begin until you could see the conveyor belts and wood piles. Even a strike or two that did not seem to be a worry that things would not get resolved. It was the mill, after all, and it would always be there. The daily whistles kept us on track for meals as kids. When there was a fire, my brother and I raced to the kitchen to decipher the whistle codes and where in town the fire was. When there were occasional fires at the mill and Dad was working, it made for an uneasy summer afternoon until he came home again. The mill was safety, the mill was constant, and the mill was larger than life. After my senior year ended, I accepted my fate working summers during college. It was not what I had imagined. The people I saw in the community were different inside the mill, and the shadows on their faces cast a different affect. The magazine room was dangerous, exhausting, and an endless task as I had to pull logs into a hole in the floor to be ground up for pulp. The super calendar area was also where I worked most the first two years, watching the final product get rewound into smaller rolls the droning of the machines, the dangers of moving parts, and making a mistake where co-workers would tell you quickly how you screwed up and loud enough to get through any ear protection. <laughs> My dad would come around from time to time to check in on me, fewer times than I think he really wanted to. As much as a college student enjoys hearing their dad give them advice, I secretly cherished his, and it was often quite helpful. The hours were long, erratic, and exhausting, though the money was exceptional. Within a month, I had an appreciation renewed for my dad, my uncles, my grandfather, and anyone else that worked in the mill and understood. I understood how the mill provided, how the mill exhausted, and how the mill created heroes and households all across town. They are the ones that deserve that victory parade. And now, as you know, this is all being documented for posterity. And I'm going to bring this um, little mic down to everybody here. And if anybody would like to just make comments or have questions or just thoughts, I'll hand you the mic. Just say a few words into it. I'll just hand it over to you. First, I'd like to say thank you. This was wonderful. I grew up in a paper-making family. My dad... Norman Soper uh, worked on the super calendar machine, and I never knew what that was all about. I just knew he worked on the super calendar machine. <laughs> uh, 
And my brother, David Soper, worked in the mill, and uh, he didn't work in the paper machines. He, he helped keep them running. And um, my dad passed away last year. And uh, I wish I'd asked him a little bit more. I know he was in the Air Force, and when he came home, he went in the mill, and uh, he worked there 40 years, I guess. And uh, my brother worked there for 40 plus years. So paper, the paper mill was always there. I, I visited the mill uh, probably 10 times going through when they used to let just the paper makers take their families through or their friends. And uh, my husband's and my husband's families got to go through and see what it was all about. And, and they all would come out and go, oh, how do you work there? It's so loud and it's so hot. <laughs> But um, there's a lot of memories, and this was a great day. I really appreciate it. Thank you. See, that wasn't so hard, was it? That was great. Thank you. Come right over here. I would thank, thank everybody who made the effort to come here and make this program such a marvelous, marvelous tribute to the town and the people of this town and how resilient you are and what a what a wonderful legacy you all have left for this town and this city and this um state and i just think that you have done a marvelous marvelous job in keeping this history available for integrity for forever Thank you. I worked in the mill, but not out on the paper machines. I worked in IBM, then I went to bookkeeping and payroll, engineering, and I retired from the maintenance department and I kept track of all the clock numbers and the work that you'd done for the day, recording eight hours or 12 hours, uh, just using numbers, telling what you were doing. Uh, and I sure miss all the people in the mill. And it tears me apart to see the, all the officers you can look in as they're tearing them apart. And you paper makers, I know you had to clean the machines, leave them spotless, and then watch them tear all your work away. It was a joy working with everyone in the mill. Thank you. My dad, Don Dunbar, was one of the first in the mill way back, and he was from Penobscot. He got in there early enough so he was able to get a lot of his friends a job from that same area. And it meant a lot to dad. Some years later, dad got extremely hurt. One of the, a boom up here at the mill f fell on him, and he was severely hurt, laid up for a couple of years. And, and I'm just going to shorten this because I could go on and on, but I remember one day I was, I was home, and dad answered the phone. 
and uh, they never talked to me about what he made. Or, uh, but, any, but Dad is either president, vice president, secretary, treasurer of that union, I think, ever since he was in there. Even when he was in the hospital bed at the house, they'd come pay their union dues. But anyway, Dad, he answered the phone one day, and, and I heard him uh, say to Mom, oh, it's just another lawyer. So when Dad got hurt with that crane, the lawyers would contact him left and right to sue. And, one, and I heard Dad say this once, um, I wouldn't sue him because they gave my, all my friends jobs. That meant so much to my father. They gave all his friends a job, and he was so thankful he wouldn't sue the mill. That's, my, that's the man of integrity right there. Yes. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today on Main Currents, but you can listen to more stories about the Bucksport Mills impact on the people of that town in the book that this event was based on, Still Mill, Poems, Stories, and Songs of Making Paper in Bucksport, 1930 to 2014, edited by Patricia Smith Ranzoni, Bucksport's Poet Laureate, and published by North Country Press, copyrighted and registered with the Library of Congress in 2017 and used today with permission. Many thanks to John Greenman for recording the event. I'm Amy Brown. Join me for Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture on the first Thursday morning of every month at 10 o'clock, only here on your community radio station, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming online at WERU.org. WERU.org is also where you'll find the archives of our locally produced public affairs programs, including this one, either later today or tomorrow, with those links that I promised earlier. So be sure to check that out and pass that on to anyone who may have missed it. Stay tuned now for On the Wing with Mark Dyer, coming up next. Democracy Now! produces a daily, global, independent news hour hosted by a 